Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Cholley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1, but we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. Before we get to that, hello to today's listener, Tarquin Shipley. I'm, I like this as the Red Box while out scrambling here in Snowdonia. It reminds me of why I like living here and not London as I used to. And got loads of um, photos of goats and things and mountains and water and it all looks very nice uh, much nicer actually than the view out of the out of the news building here although that view is also quite nice too right on with the episode coming up ahead of the super thursday elections this week we head to scotland for the latest times radio focus group today with people planning to vote for the smp who aren't too sure about independence There's quite a lot of them, about one in five uh, people who are planning to vote for the SNP opposed independence in 2014, and they could cause a bit of a headache for Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, That's coming up. James Johnson joining me for that. But first, our columnist palette. It's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. <laughs> it doesn't get tired, does it? In fact, it gets sillier the more you hear it. Uh, good morning, Daniel Finkelstein. Good morning. One day, we'll be sort of years away from the original joke that produced that jingle. And you'll just be left with the jingle, with people wondering why on earth you're playing it. Yeah, when both of you have been away and replaced, but we're still using the... uh, It's good the dog's still there as well. We need to get the... the... No, this one's my dog. Oh, is that your dog? Yeah, no, this is my Cerberus. Now, my wife has gone off to Marks and Spencer and said, the dog will be all right with you. And I said, well, the worst thing can happen is that Donnie's is that Danny's dog starts up and then our dog starts up. <laughs> but our dog has started up without... And my dog is much louder than your dog and it's really embarrassing. What, what, um, what sort of dog have you got, David? Um, uh, a bull mastiff. No, I've got a, I've got a Kerry Blue Terrier. <laughs> Lovely. And what's, remind us what yours is, uh, Danny. It's Cockapoo. Of course it is. Of course it is. You're so on trend. Somebody made a very nice cake of your dog, didn't they? Not out of your dog, but of your dog. They did, yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Very good. Anyway, we're not here Somebody to Somebody made a nice cake out of your dog? No, of of his dog. A cake of his oh. dog. Yes. Okay. But is it right... Modelled upon, David. <laughs> is it right... <laughs> that... Should we get on with it? <laughs> I don't know. I think people are quite like to know. Anyway, yes, you're quite right. Let's talk about Super Thursday. The big elections happening on Thursday... Uh, everyone is very excited. The entire nation is gripped by election fever. Does any of it matter, David? Well, 
Scotland matters. Scotland matters an awful lot, but I'm hard pressed to think that anything else much matters. I mean, if by matter, I mean, of course, they matter in themselves in that it matters who your councillor is. Uh, and it might matter if the MP for Hartlepool um, is this or that. Um, but it, in terms of the kind of big picture, the future of the country and so on, the only one that really matters is the is the Scottish election, I think. Um, and uh, it's quite interesting how we tend to, be, you know, we have, we have a slight tendency to say, well, that's kind of sui generis. It's it's. It's it's different from everything else, and we kind of put it in a different category. And yet, it's easily the most consequential of the elections because it could very well dictate whether or not a credible demand for a second Scottish referendum uh, is put forward, which would, I've always thought, be very difficult for a British government to decline for any length of time. We're going to be talking about that in a bit with the the, the focus group of SM, people voting SNP who aren't actually huge enthusiasts for. Uh, independence, and I suppose that's the you know the the, the, the people who are actually ev- electing a first minister, someone to run the government of Scotland. But that come Friday or Monday or whenever it is, we know the results, Danny. The first thing that Nicholas Sturgeon is going to do is, is see this as a as a mandate for for yes. a second referendum. Absolutely. Look, I I, I don't I, I agree with David up to a point. We're not going to learn anything new beyond pushing the Scottish election to one side. But I wouldn't quite agree that we're not going to learn anything important. It, it is something we should understand, but what we're going to see is a realignment that's taking place in British politics. Everyone's talking about Hartlepool, but let's also talk about London. Uh, mm. The Conservative Party's flailing in London, um, and it's possible that, that uh, you know, you could see Tadeek Khan even getting to 50%, if not actually on the first ballot, very close to the first ballot and that is very significant and these are elections that these parties are not so much losing as more um sort of abandoning um the the conservative party has pitched itself as the sort of non-london party and the labor party is struggling with a choice that it has effectively made but doesn't really accept that it has um of of not really being the hartlepool party um and um the conservative party is sort of at home with the decision that it's made, even though I'm actually a bit uncomfortable with it, Um, uh, whereas the Labour Party isn't at home with it and doesn't really accept that that's that's what it's really done. And I think that probably tells you a lot about the political situation in which the Labour Party is sort of uncomfortable with the consequences of its decision. And you can see by the candidate that they've chosen, right? The Conservative Party has clearly chosen a candidate who's not that strong, but Labour's chosen a candidate who is very strong, but just not for that seat. And um, that is a recognition by that's a failure to recognize by the Labour Party the choice that it's made so I think these are quite significant but David's right they're not going to tell us anything that we don't know today I suppose it, well it's all I suppose what there's what we think we know which is uh, lots of people might have a hunch that Keir Starmer's not making any headway uh, but seeing that you know confirmed in black and white in some election results would would confirm I'm, that I suppose David I'm not sure it's going to tell us it's okay. not, I'm not sure it's necessarily going to tell us that he isn't making any headway. Right? So one of the things that they, the Labour Party might want to fight the next election on is it's better the devil... You, the Tories might fight the election on it's better the devil you know if the economy doesn't go uh, particularly well. And, it, um, and uh, Keir Starmer has definitely reduced 
the extent to which they'd be able to do that. He, he's, there's definitely, even on the more ambitiously uh, big Tory leads that we were seeing a week or so ago, even those were showing a swing towards Labour. It's not entirely the case that he's mo- not making any impact at all. But I do have strategic problems with what he's doing. I think he's aiming at seats Labour used to hold and not enough at seats that they want to hold in future. And I think his message, therefore, lacks definition. But it's quite early in the Parliament. Yeah, there is there, there is a bit of a problem there, which, of course, is the by-election has come up in the seat that it's come up in and not one, another seat. Um, and it is absolutely classically on uh, a problematic fault line. I mean, people have pointed out that if you put together the Tory party vote and the Brexit party vote at the last election, then you get a majority of the sort that seems to be indicated by the polls at the moment. But my problem, uh, and we've discussed this before, is that the pandemic is more or less everything to everybody at the moment. And it's more, uh, it's such a kind of overwhelming thing. And at the moment, the government has a significant bounce on on vaccine, which is completely understandable. And I just don't think you're going to get a real picture of whether or not people think that Keir Starmer is a credible candidate for prime minister or, 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 or judging them and for, for, for another year or so, um, nine months, maybe, maybe a year till this is cleared. It's not, we've never been through anything remotely like this before. And it's pointless to try and suggest that somehow or other it's it's what we've seen before. I, however, take your point very firmly, Danny, about uh, about the about big shifts and so on. But the big shifts are slightly different, I think, to the way people imagine that they are. I mean, for example, if we were to look, I would like to see what younger voters in Hartlepool are doing and what the trends are there, and whether that tells you anything about the long term. Because I don't think this is just purely geographical. I mean, the last few elections, it's also been significantly generational attitude. And if that kind of, and I know your uh, old friend uh, Andrew Cooper thinks this too, if that kind of carries on through, that that has some very long-term consequences, which at the moment... That's why... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. That's why I wouldn't make the choice the Conservative Party's making. I think it is um, buying um, near-term victories and hoping the long-term will look after itself. And that has actually, to be fair, been the experience of the Conservative Party. You know, when when the moment comes to shift in future, it uh, it does so. But I'm not sure that that's what will happen now. So I think choosing to be the non-urban party of older, less diverse voters in a country that's um, going to become more urban, more liberal and more diverse, I think that has long-term bad consequences. But short-term, and and that's where, that by the way, is what I would embrace if I were Keir Starmer. But the problem is he's got to win, you know, he's thinking, well, I've got to win the next election. There's no point me winning an election in two two years, uh, in two times after that, because I won't be leader then. And I suppose whenever the, the sort of Labour argument was that, well, last year was all the pandemic and this year was the vaccine, it, it, to some extent, at some point, the Labour Party has to come up with a plan in, which addresses the circumstances in which they find themselves. That There's never going to be a perfect opportunity, apart from just sitting and waiting and hoping the Tories muck it up, which Ed Miliband tested to destruction. <laughs> uh, Jeremy Corbyn did a pretty good job of it as well. And if the Tories don't muck yeah. up, and uh, 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 then it's not going to fall into your lap. And I, I just wonder if there's been any... If you can see any evidence that Keir Starmer has got... Because the Labour Party have such a huge amount of decline. They need sort of electric shock therapy to try and... Uh, you know, re-engage with large parts of the country. 
and he's sort of yeah. sl- slightly soothing tone. Have you shown... Has he got that spark, I suppose, is the I, I question. Mean, I t- I, I, to the answer, as far as I'm concerned, is I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I won't know till probably the middle of next year. I mean, next year, we will be getting, at the end of this year and the next year, we'll be getting into the post-pandemic uh, situation. We'll begin to see... It, and the post-immediate Brexit situation. We'll begin to see what the long-term uh, and medium-term problems are that the country faces, and people will be getting to feel some of these consequences. It's at that point that an opposition looking at an election two years away begins to formulate a big programme. Now, the question is whether or not your critique, which is before your programme, has some kind of traction. And that's the problem with the pandemic, which is in the consequences of the vaccine rollout and the reopening, (coughs) the biggest things by a country mile that anybody's looking at, they don't have something significantly different to say to the government. Um, And they can't, and, and it's pointless for them to pretend that they do. Uh, so, right, so we're not going to we're not going to read too much into the elections uh, this week. The other big thing, uh, the other big election which is happening, uh, which almost almost nobody can vote in at all, is the uh, the leadership contest uh, to replace Arlene Foster as uh, leader of the Democratic Unionist Party. Um, uh, it was what there's 38 people I think who were able to vote in this. Um, one, well, the first person I think to throw his hat into the ring was Edwin Poots, um, who uh, the question I think you posed, Dan uh, David, was does it matter? If someone uh, running to be the leader of a political party in Britain thinks that the earth was created 6,000 years ago. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, uh, the whole thing is completely fascinating. The first thing is the DUP have never held a leadership election in their history. Never. There's never been one. It's all been done by anointing a leader who's come out from this relatively small group. The second thing is you now look like you've got two candidates, but only 38 people are electing them. So you literally kind of phone them all round in a morning. So do you have a leader debate on television and then say to people, well, that's very nice. And I do hope the 38 people who are going to be voting have been watching that carefully because they're the people who are actually going to decide. It's a, it's a really bizarre moment. And then, thirdly, you've got this uh, character, Edwin Poots, who apparently is a fairly canny politician, but has some very peculiar, um, uh, to, as far as I'm concerned, religious beliefs. I think, I think most religious people believe they're uh, rather bizarre beliefs now, including creationism, that the world was literally created in 4004 BC, and therefore dinosaurs can't be any older than that, which is a bit of a problem given carbon dating and so on. How can you have somebody who says, I don't care about carbon dating, I'm not taking it in order that I, you know, uh, and explains dinosaurs in some other kind of way. Can you can you expect that person to run the health service properly? And the answer to which may be yes, because people's capacity for cognitive dissonance is always extraordinary, as I think Danny will probably uh, back me up on. Yeah, just, just to uh, clarify, yes. he literally did say this. He was in a TV programme in 2007 when he was Northern Ireland's culture minister. He was asked uh, when the Earth came into existence. He said, my view on the Earth is that it's a young Earth. My view is 4,000 BC. Uh, Matthew Paris, a colleague, Times columnist, pressed him on whether his religious convictions meant he did not believe in evolution. He said, yes, absolutely. Uh, And you're telling me that all of this evolution took place over billions of years, and yet it's only in the last few thousand years that man could actually learn to write. You're telling me that cosmic balls of dust gathered and there was an explosion. We've had lots of explosions in Northern Ireland, and I've never seen anything good come out of that. <laughs> Does this matter, Danny? <laughs> yeah, so I'm in favour of the 38 people choosing the leader. Yes, um, I was going to ask about that, because you, you they think actually do know. They probably do a better job than party members. Yeah, I think they're... 
Yes, I do. Um, it, but the, the problem is I'm not in favour of 38 members of the DUP uh, choosing anything, not because there are 38 of them, but because they're all members of the DUP. Um, and, uh, the, you know, we have to um, not confuse ourselves with the fact that we all uh, think some of this uh, cult-like stuff is bizarre um, and think that that means they're not suitable to be leaders of the DUP because that's what the DUP is right uh, and the DUP's got itself in the position where Arlene Foster had to resign uh, on the grounds they thought she was too moderate I think um, uh, after a series of events in which in which they said no to every aspect of Brexit uh, in, uh, even when one thing was the opposite of another right they were opposed to no deal to Theresa May's deal to Boris Johnson's deal um, and to having a second referendum in other words all the options um, and um, they, they are uh, so you know, I'm not sure that the fact that he th thinks the Earth is only a few thousand years old is any more stupid than the rest of the things that they think. It just brings on sharply up against uh, what, where, what these people actually stand for and the crisis that that represents for the United Kingdom, actually, that a substantial fraction of, you know, and a substantial part of our politics are represented by something quite as extreme and uh, uh, as they are. But I don't think the 38 people is the problem. <laughs> David, there was part of it that, that I was sort of thinking about this morning is that... Um, None of us really know the country that we live in particularly well. And we're always a bit surprised by, you know, whether it is someone who could end up leading a political party in this United Kingdom who thinks the Earth's only 4,000 years old. Uh, you know, the reaction of lots of people to a poll putting the toys ahead in, in Hartlepool is how could they possibly do this? The morons, you know, don't they know the lying Tory lies and all that? And there's just this sort of constant sense of, but why doesn't everyone agree with me? I had no idea this was going on in this part of the, you know, in the, in the actual country that I live in uh, you, it's such a good point I mean it's such a good point and it's so hard to um, to rebut um, and it's true of all of us and, and and it's one of the things you constantly have to say to yourself whenever you're thinking about this thing what do I actually really know about it here are my sets of assumptions about how people would behave but they're essentially based on how I would behave if I was in that situation and it's not me and I'm not in that situation so uh, maybe this doesn't really kind of count um, and therefore you have to listen harder so I'm going to find myself in the very odd position of defending very slightly the DUP to Danny Finkelstein, um, <laughs> which, is a, which is a kind of strange thing. Because actually, the D, even the DUP is rather more nuanced and subtle than he gives it credit for being, although I completely understand why, why, Danny was, why you were saying what you were, Danny. It does actually have a modernising wing, the DUP. And it does have people who think the it DUP does, yeah. was the better vehicle to uh, to make their political careers in while trying to move it into more into the kind of modern world uh, and so on. Um, so we do actually have to hope that there is a significant proportion of that 38 yes. who do feel like that. And it, it may not in the end matter which of the two leaders they actually do elect from that point of view, but it might matter when it comes to, 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 to what they then do. It's worth remembering that the next election next year um, uh, for the Stormont Assembly, if Sinn Féin gets the most votes, the First Minister is a Sinn Féin member. And at that point, you begin to, you have begun to move into a really different situation. Um, we've already moved, began to, we've already more or less got there demographically in Northern Ireland. And, and this, in the week of, in the year of, the 100th anniversary of the foundation of Northern Ireland, it's all deeply significant.
It really is. Yeah. Um, but I think we should... I, uh, I think our position on that should be to be relaxed about it because that's what we've said, uh, what, what we've always said as a country, which is, we, you know, it's because there's a majority that doesn't want uh, to have a united Ireland, that wants to be part of the United Kingdom, that we insist on their right uh, to continue doing it. But the moment that majority no longer exists, um, that, that insistence falls. I, I, I do agree that there is a modernising wing in the DUP up to a point. Um, and um, I also, by the way, don't think that uh, it's only morons who believe moronic things. Lots of people that believe <laughs> what I would call moronic things, because that's my opinion, uh, because they're very clever, actually. And if you listen to what Edwin Poots says, um, that these are, these are, this is a stupid opinion supported by very clever arguments, suggesting he's not stupid. He picked those arguments uh, because they suit his... Um, overall way of looking at the world um, and it's a mistake sometimes to think that because people come out with what what I think are stupid positions uh, that means they are stupid they often are in fact reaching those positions for exactly the opposite reason they're very bright people Danny Finkstein and David Wanovich there of course you can read them in the Times every week pick up a copy of the paper or go online to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box to get yourself a digital subscription. Up next, it's the focus group where we head to Scotland. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. You're listening to the Red Box podcast. Now it's time for the focus group. First of all, tell us the group, because it's a very specific type of voter that we're focusing on this time around. Uh, who are the people we are hearing from the focus group uh, this month? Yeah, so what we've done is we've recruited eight people who voted no in the independence referendum in 2014, but are now saying they're going to vote SNP at the Scottish Parliament elections on Thursday. Now, that might seem a counterintuitive group, but actually it's a key plank of Nicola Sturgeon's electoral support. Around one in five people that voted no in 2014 are now saying they're voting SNP. So it's a significant number. And as I say, you know, a real key part of that sort of voter support that Sturgeon is hoping will carry her over the line to a majority on Thursday. 
Yeah, no, actually, it, it sort of it seems to cut both ways as well. In the in the most recent YouGov survey, asking for voter uh, headline voting attention in the Hollywood elections, the SNP won what forty nine percent, and uh, of those. Uh, of of the people who voted no in the independence referendum, yeah, one in five, twenty percent, uh, saying they are going to vote for the SP. So that is why they're a sizable chunk, and there may well be others, of course, as well, who are unsure about the, uh, um, the the wisdom of pushing ahead with an independence referendum this time, man. And just uh, as ever, James, the health warning, the public service message: what is the value of focus groups against uh, large sample uh, opinion polls? Why why is this useful? Why do political parties of all colours use them? Yep. So they're not intended to replace those polls. They're big samples. You know, they're they're designed to get a snapshot of what the country thinks, whereas focus groups are there to dive into a specific group. So we're not saying this is representative. We're not even saying this is representative of SNP voters. We're saying this gives a flavour of what a certain uh, part of the electorate think. And that's to dig into really what they think under the surface of some of those numbers you see reported in polls, how they think, how they feel, how they talk about their vote, and also what messages and and sort of campaigns and issues resonate well or not so well with those voters. Okay, before we get stuck into the uh, subject of uh, independence, let's just have a quick whistle-stop tour of what they, what this particular group, so just so we can get to know them a bit, what do they think of the different party leaders? Uh, let's start then with, uh, let's uh, let's hear them sum up Nicola Sturgeon in a word. Trustworthy. Obviously confident. Uh, determined. Honest. Consistent. Uh, down to earth. Relatable. Strong. Um, I would say charismatic. So there we are. They are fans broadly of Nicola Sturgeon. They, they, they really are. And there was really almost no criticism of Nicola Sturgeon from these voters. And she was untouchable uh, in terms of uh, what they said about her and thought about her, um, which is interesting. And a lot of that really does stem, as I'm sure we'll hear, from the view of that she's managed COVID well uh, and that she's managed the sort of domestic agenda well. These voters aren't just thinking about independence. They're thinking about a future first minister, a future government, the things that matter to them, like hospitals, schools and, of course, coronavirus. So, yeah, she's certainly winning very high plaudits from these voters. We should point out, reminder again, these are people who said they're going to vote SNP. It's probably not a surprise to big fans of uh, of Nicola Sturgeon. Let's hear what they had to take uh, their take on uh, Douglas Ross, the Conservative, Scottish uh, Conservative uh, leader. Let's take a listen. Uh, I don't I don't really have much to say um about Douglas Ross. I don't um I don't I don't really I need to have a think about it. I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm gonna have a wee mm-hmm. think and I'll get back to you. I'm the same. Not really sure. Um yeah. Mm-mm. Um he has not been my um focus really. I I try to take my eyes away from the Tory party and um because they are just like, um, they're like jokers. Yeah, yeah interesting. I think the most uh, relevant thing I know about him is that he's a, a qualified football, either referee or linesman. And I know he's, he's done that to a, actually a fairly high level. Um, I'm not too sure just how long he's been leader of the, the Tory party, but I think maybe that's why he has, I don't, I don't know whether he flies under the radar because he's got a low profile or, or whatever, but... Yeah, I, I don't really know a whole huge amount about him. Like I say, it's football and practically nothing else. Yeah, I don't really know much about him either. I think I'm probably just in the thought of, oh, he's Tory and can I switch off? <laughs> yeah, similar uh, to what Gordon was just saying there. Um, he's only been in power for, what, eight weeks or ten weeks or something. Um, but every time I see him in this campaign trail, he's quite cringeworthy. Um, he doesn't come across as a true Scot or... or 
and he'd, yeah, but I've been watching a lot of these leaders' debates. I'm quite into politics. I've been watching a lot of these leaders' debates, and he just can't hold. He can't stand up against Nicola Sturgeon. He can't stand up against Anna Sarwa. Um, even Patrick Harvey can take him down, and it's like, oh my God! Do you know I mean a politician needs to be strong? They need to be to stable. I mean, everything that comes out of his mouth is just drivel. So they're not fans of Douglas Ross, the uh, Conservative uh, Scottish uh, Scottish Conservative uh, leader. Uh, they are right, James, to point out that he, he hasn't been Scottish uh, Conservative leader for very long, uh, and he's not even in the Scottish Parliament at the moment. Ruth Davidson holding the fort until he hopes to get there in the elections this week. Yeah, I think though that will be a bit of a worry to the Scottish Conservatives. Um, although these voters are saying they'll vote SNP. On paper, these are exactly the kind of voters the Conservatives are trying to win over in Scotland, those voters who voted no in 2014. Um, And yeah, you can see there, there's a bit of don't know, there's a bit of I don't know who he is, but there's also that slight sort of turn to people becoming a bit more hostile. And if you compare that with how Ruth Davidson was perceived, even by those who didn't much like her, she was seen as making much more of an impact and being much more a much more popular figure. However, with Ruth Davidson, it also took a while um, for voters to come round to her. Her figures um, had her approval figures had don't know really leading for quite a long time, but not great signs for Douglas Ross as we head into the election on Thursday for sure. Uh, it's sort of all all new, uh, several new leaders in Scotland uh, this time around as well. Labour have a new leader, Anas Sarwa, who actually came out slightly better with the with the uh, Times Radio Focus Group. Let's take a listen. Yeah, as what I've picked up on Anasawa, again, he's not been in power that long. He's been the Labour leader for, what, four weeks or five weeks or something. Um, he talks quite well. He talks quite well. Um, I think he gets the Scottish people a little bit better than Labour has for the last 20, 25 years, which is good because we do need a strong opposition. But his figures and his his policies just don't add up. Um, I quite I quite like him. Um, I think he's he seems quite honest and and fair. And um, it's the first time I, I think the Labour Party's been represented with somebody that that y- you could relate with. Um, so I, I'm 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 he's, he's, I've, I've kind of noticed him a wee bit. Um, more than um, I can't even remember the guy that was was last leader leader of the party. Um, He's got the potential to be a, a good Labour leader, but it's, it's still early days, isn't it? So, I he's all right. He's kind of likable enough. Don't really know too much about him. Yeah, I think uh, back up, but uh, yeah, but everyone said there. I think he talks well. So, um, slightly different, given they've been leaders of their respective parties for reasonably similar lengths of time. Anasawa seems to be making a slightly more positive impression with this group of voters, James. Yeah, and I think it goes back to one of those things that, well, we talk about on this focus group all the time, Matt, which is that voters really do prize authenticity. And I think they see Anasawa as being a bit more authentic, a bit more of a uh, person who sort of speaks their views and, and doesn't worry too much about how they how they come across. And they quite like that. So, yeah, it's a great uh, opening for Scottish Labour. However, as the polls also show, it's not really, just as it is with these voters, not really converting into support for Labour. And those worries about Labour's brand, especially on things, the same concerns you hear in England again and again with swing voters about 
Labour's plans not adding up, Labour's record on the economy. Those worries, they're not quite being brushed away by Anna Sarwar's popularity. But look, I think Scottish Labour are, are very aware of that. I think they probably went into this election thinking they're not going to make a huge amount of progress. And I think Anna Sarwar is probably looking at this with a slightly longer game in mind. So it is promising, but not really moving votes at this stage. Yeah, and probably for both of them, these elections have come a bit early in their leadership without having uh, been able to make much, much of an impact. Before we get to this question of independence, then, what, what they make of all of that, obviously there's one man who looms large in all of this who isn't even up for election. This is what they thought about Boris Johnson. It was not a very nice word um, but, uh, that we came to mind, so I'll go with Buffoon. Um, I would say Muppet. Um, I would say he's fussy. He wants to pull through every time. He incompetent. Liar. He's an embarrassment. Ridiculous. Yeah, he's a clown, an absolute clown. Yeah, and uh, maybe that's feeding a little bit into uh, <laughs> into the perceptions of Douglas Ross too, James. Yeah, it could well be, though. Douglas Ross looks uh, saintly compared to uh, how they view uh, Boris Johnson there. Uh, yeah, this is, this is not uh, a new thing. I mean, if you remember the uh, Scottish focus groups we did back near the end of last year, it was a very similar picture with Boris Johnson, a real problem for these voters. You can certainly see why there are these reports that um, senior Conservatives really don't want to have to fight another independence referendum while Boris Johnson is Prime Minister, as he is a real drag uh, on these voters and their views uh, of both the UK and and also the Conservative Party. It's worth saying we also asked about some of the recent things in the news around Boris Johnson. Uh, These voters have clearly made up their mind quite a long time ago about Boris, but they were adding those recent problems, whether over the flat refurbishment uh, or over corrupt, uh, um, alleged corruption, they were listing those alongside their their sort of pre-existing grievances uh, <laughs> about Boris. Yes, and so why does all this matter? Because as the polls currently suggest at the moment, the SNP are on course to uh, be at least the biggest party, if not having a, a overall majority. And uh, Nicola Sturgeon will come under pressure from her uh, party, from the SNP, to push for a second independence referendum. But uh, there is some risks, James, in uh, seeing the outcome of the elections this week as a mandate to go hard on that early. There there certainly is. And uh, one of the really striking things about this focus group is that these voters did not think uh, that Nicola Sturgeon was planning an independence referendum anytime soon. And that comes to uh, some surprise. Uh, um, we've been uh, putting this on Twitter just before the the, the, sh- the show went out and people have ex- uh, reacted in the usual way on Twitter. So people calling voters idiots, people saying, where have these people been for the last 80 years? But actually, if you look at the SNP's campaign, they have been very careful to stress domestic issues and, and Nicola Sturgeon's record on COVID rather than an independence referendum, because they know that a lot of these voters, especially these new voters who've come to the SNP, are very nervous about the prospect of an independence referendum. And they and that has worked with these voters. They don't think it's the surgeon's priority. They don't think it's the SNP's immediate priority. Uh, but if you float it in front of them, as we're about to hear, uh, they become very nervous about the idea of Sturgeon taking such a path. Yeah, a good uh, example of, the, of two messages you were, uh, you were just referring to. One says, uh, those of us who uh, live politics will find this surreal, but there's a reason why SNP election leaflets barely mention independence and why Indy Ref 2 was taken off their ballot paper description. It's also another reason why you can't pretend every vote for them is a vote for a second referendum. Uh, that's from Duncan. And then Roger says, your regular reminder that voters are complete more ones, uh, which is always, always a good approach. Always a good approach. Right, let's take a listen then. This is what the focus group uh, thought that Nicola Sturgeon's current position is on in, on the uh, question of independence. As far as I'm aware, she's wanting to deal with the pandemic. She has said herself that um, 
she will put it to a vote to the people of Scotland, but that's not her top priority. Um, so I'd imagine at some point there will be a vote, but at least she's got her priorities right. At least she's not gone and saying, right, if, if we get in, I'm going to um, do a vote in the next four weeks or whatever. I don't know how long, but... So, James, that's, that's literally bearing out what he was saying, that they've, they've uh, tried to focus their campaign on domestic issues and people then think that her priority isn't uh, for independence. Um, so you asked then, well, is independence playing any part of why they're voting for the SNP? Let's take a listen. Myself, independence isn't a big thing at the moment. Getting through this pandemic is a big thing, and I think that's why Nicola has sort of shelved it, the independence for just now. Um, once we are a wee bit clearer how we're getting through this pandemic, then then maybe go for it. I believe um, due to the track record, um, she has really pulled her weight. And um, with the pandemic, she has handled it well. But I, I know that independence isn't the reason that I'm voting at SNP. I think, I think now the SNP have got a proven track record. I mean, they've been in power for a, for a while now. They're one of the longest standing kind of parties that have been in power even in the UK. So I, I do think they've got a proven track record on NHS, on education, on childcare, on, on loads of things now that a lot of people can trust them. It's not all about independence. And I think the best thing that happened to the SNP was losing Alex Hammond when they did. Yeah, not uh, big fans of uh, Alex Hammond. This is really interesting, James, and it's a good corrective to all of us, whether it's, you know, pundits on the radio or people um, mouthing off on social media, that you can't assume that great blocks of votes are all going for one reason or another. And is a vote for uh, the SNP in Scotland a vote for independence? Is a vote for uh, Boris Johnson in Hartlepool a vote for flat refurbishments you know the reasons why people cast their vote are complicated yeah and they're complicated but also when you step back to what this is electing a scottish government it's not that surprising you know, voters are thinking about those domestic issues more than they're thinking about independence but it does show a really big tension in the snp uh, voter coalition um whether they get this majority on thursday whether they just fall short it's going to be very difficult because Nicola Sturgeon is going to be under an immense amount of pressure by her party to go for a referendum. And these voters, uh, you know, a small but not insignificant chunk of her vote are saying, well, actually, we're not so we're not so keen on that. So that is going to be problematic. I mean, I, I would hesitate to call it a, a false mandate because that's not how it works. You know, the, the SNP is quite rightly running on a manifesto that has an independence referendum in it. And they can, of course, claim that that is their mandate. That's how elections work. But it is perhaps a slightly misleading mandate, because under the surface, we do have these big hesitations about an independence referendum amongst people who are voting for the SNP. Yes, you asked uh, uh, James Johnson's uh, with me. She, uh, having carried out uh, polling for number 10, he now does our uh, monthly Times radio focus groups for us. James, you asked him specifically about uh, what their hesitations might be about voting for the SNP. Let's take a listen. Independence. Or just... Uh, financially can do we know enough to be able to cope with independence is it is it going to be a better option for us so that's uh that's pretty clear what are your hesitations for voting for the SNP independence they know it's sort of there and, and lingering james yeah quite and again it seems strange to people you know how can, how can you be voting SNP but not thinking about independence but is that is that record uh, in government that they like, like I say, it, it is it is going to be a big tension. Um, it is it is difficult to see 
uh, how the SNP uh, sort of manages that, because they could end up with lots of voters feeling quite angry, quite upset uh, and feeling like they've misled. They were some of the words that voters said when we presented them with those potential scenarios. The other thing is that Alex Salmond being in this election has also allowed them to think a bit more positively about Nicola Surgeon, because it was interesting. They talked about one voter when I asked them what they thought about Alex Salmond replied with independence, independence, independence. They see Alex Salmond as the guy always fussing about independence. And that's allowed Nicola Sturgeon to cast herself in a more moderate, gentle light with these voters. Hey, it's really interesting that, that maybe he's provided, provided a bit of cover for. There's always been this slightly weird thing as well of when Nicola Sturgeon accuses her of political opponents, the Tories and the Labour Party, of obsessing about independence and constitutional things. Uh, uh, and uh, they accuse her back of doing the same, but keeping that argument up is quite often what uh, motivates the base. You mentioned there about the different scenarios you put to uh, the focus group. Uh, we'll find out what they thought uh, Nicola Sturgeon should do uh, after the elections uh, in a moment. We'll do that next here on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. Matt Chorley with the Times Radio Focus Group in association with Kex CNC. James Johnson, former pollster for Number 10, now does uh, focus groups for us here on Times Radio every month. This month we are speaking to a group of people who voted against independence in 2014 but are now backing the SNP in elections to the Scottish Parliament this week. Uh, and the big question is uh, <laughs> what they would make of uh, Nicola Sturgeon pushing ahead with a second independence referendum. Uh, James, you, you put a few few scenarios uh, to the group. We'll uh, uh, hear the, the answer to a couple of them uh, now. You sort of um, presented some possible news headlines uh, that might uh, come after the elections this week. The first one, the headline, Sturgeon wins majority and immediately puts second referendum plan into motion. Let's hear uh, how our focus group would react to that. Well, um, it would be way, way too soon. Scotland as a country would not be ready to make a an informed um, decision about that at all in the middle of the pandemic? Absolutely not. Yeah, exactly the same. Too early and also a bit cheeky, you know, now trying to concentrate on COVID and then when she's going to win, oh, let's go for a referendum, let's forget about COVID, about, you know, um, dealing with that because that's not as important anymore because we win so we can move on to referendum. Yeah, I, I, I can, and I can even, I think that would be a big mistake and it's almost certainly not going to happen because, you know, that essentially that's their cap. They have parked the independence question so far to the side. It's not at the front. Uh, that, that isn't going to happen immediately. I feel pretty disappointed and lied to because if she said that that's not going to be at the forefront, um, she wants to get us through the recovery of this pandemic. And then if that was to be the case, no, I'd feel pretty angry and disappointed. I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. I think I would be really angry um, because that's not why I'm voting for SNP now. I'm voting for SNP to try and help Scotland to recover. No. I don't think it's a good move if you wish to try that. That's the kind of thing Alex Salmon would do. So there we are. That's the kind of thing that Alex Salmon would do. They said it would be cheeky if uh, um, Nicola Sturgeon pursued a, a second referendum. And then really this idea that she's parked independence does really seem to be quite sort of deep rooted, James. Quite. And these voters weren't just saying, oh, OK, I wouldn't really fancy that if she did it. You know, they were using quite strong words, disappointed, cheeky, you know, worried. Uh, and uh, I think a couple of other people said angry as well. Um, just to sort of put... Uh, listeners sort of minds at rest we 
at first I did wonder whether this was perhaps a reaction to having one, you know, almost immediately um, and, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, which obviously no one suggesting Nicola Sturgeon isn't suggesting either. But we also tested that same statement for later next year, right, you know, at the end of 2022. And it had the same reaction, exactly the same hostility. So it's not just about having a referendum during a pandemic. It's about having a referendum anytime soon, and particularly while we're still recovering from that pandemic, which voters do see, these voters do see, as a, you know, quite a long project that's going to take a few years. And it's interesting this because politics obviously plays a part in it. On the one hand, they're saying that um, this group of voters anyway, saying that Nicola Sturgeon shouldn't push on with an independence referendum, should be focusing on the pandemic. Uh, but then things change when you throw someone else into the mix. Uh, let's, uh, this is the headline that you put to them. After SNP majority and Sturgeon asked for a new vote, Boris Johnson says no referendum for a generation. What's the impact of Boris Johnson sticking his oar in? Let's take a listen. Uh, I personally would be quite angry with a, with a newspaper reporting that a day or two afterwards because I don't think it's Boris Johnson's place to tell me how I want to live my life and and, and if, I, if the SNP do go for a referendum, which is in their mandate and we're all voting for it, so they do want to give me the choice to vote and I voted for that. I don't want somebody to turn around and dictate and say, I know you voted for it, but you're not getting it. Um, I agree with that. I, I, I don't. I don't think. I think if we want to have that vote, then we should be entitled to to have it. Um, but I really, again, still, I, I, I don't. I don't think it should be the highest priority in Nicola's list to be to be talking about. I think I would much rather be be talking about things that we can see is going to improve the people of Scotland's lives. And there lies the challenge for Boris Johnson in all of this. On the one hand, they don't want Nicola Sturgeon pushing for a second referendum, but if she does and Boris Johnson says no, then they think that's wrong uh, too. It's, it's like a sort of 4D chess, this, Joe. Yeah, and it is a reminder that this is not all good news for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives. Um, the idea of Boris sort of wading in and saying no is a bit of a concern. It's interesting as well. I mean, certainly from speaking at my own time at number 10, there's always this feeling that if the Prime Minister has said something before, um, then it's actually quite risk-free for the PM to say it again. But actually, if the PM does come out the morning after an SNP majority and say some of those quite punchy statements he's made about a second referendum, um, that may well fall flat if we're in a situation where there's a majority. Now, we did test another bit of language, which was a bit more tempered. It was more Boris Johnson saying, now is not the time, Um, you know, not ruling out one uh, forever, but certainly in the next few years. And those voters were much more content with that. And they were actually agreeing with Boris Johnson and, set, and you know, much less concerned by him wading into the argument. So there is room for Boris Johnson and number 10 to get this one right, even if there is an SNP majority, because there is that underlying concern about a second vote. But they do have to step very carefully and they have to be a little bit less uh, um, certain about a referendum never happening under, under the Conservatives' watch. Yeah, and I think there's one of those things, isn't it? That, uh, different different time scales, and there have been various polls. I think it, earlier in the year there was a polling for the the Sunday Times had about half of voters uh, supported the idea of a referendum in Scotland in uh, the next five years. And I suppose it, different people have different ideas as to where where to draw uh, where to draw that line. But it's it's basically just the, the whole purpose of doing this, James, is just to sort of corrective and for people to think when they see the results start coming in at the end of this week. Uh, 
the reasons that people vote for uh, different parties, uh, the thinking behind that, and why none of this is risk-free, whether for Nicola Sturgeon or for Boris Johnson. Absolutely, and it's a classic tension between the party who are telling Nicola Sturgeon, you know, we need to, this is our moment, this is our time to get a referendum. I expect partly Nicola Sturgeon herself. I mean, you know, this is her life, you know, dream, her, her career goal to get to get independence. I expect she doesn't want to uh, be waiting forever to try and have a crack at that. Um, and then these voters who are a little bit less sure. As I say, it's not the whole SNP vote. Clearly, when you look in polling terms across the whole bunch of SNP voters, they do want to have a referendum. But this key group of it, these one in five no voters, uh, they really are uh, less keen. But also, as we say, you know, problems for Boris Johnson too. It's really important uh, for Boris Johnson and number 10, if they do want to stop this referendum happening, they've really got to make sure that they get that language right. If Boris Johnson strides onto the st- uh, steps of Downing Street on Friday morning and says, we're never having a referendum again, we've had one, you know, once in a generation, it could well be that that opinion that we've heard in that focus group today actually swings very dramatically against him. Whereas if he gets the messaging right, he can potentially carry this sort of fragile SNP coalition away from independence and potentially even against Nicola Sturgeon. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from the Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, but you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.